Well, if you'd like to take up your Bibles again, we're going to read 1 Kings 6 and 7. And it says this. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all round. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. Around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. 
The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread, so that a wing of one touched one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Round all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the door, two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved wood. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and the eight, eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Solomon was building his own house for thirteen years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits, and its breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and the windows was opposite window in three tiers. He made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There's a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. He was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court behind the hall was of light workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he'd taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawn with saws back and front, even from foundation to the coping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stone, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurements, and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone, all round and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made, made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. 
there were lattices of checkerwork with wreaths of chainwork for the capitals on the tops of the pillar. A lattice for one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one latticework to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. And he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on the top of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection which was beside the latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows, all round, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars of the vestibule, the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Joachim, and he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. On the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits from brim to brim and 5 cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds, for ten cubits, compassing the sea all round. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held two thousand baths. He also made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. And on the panels that were set on the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below, the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. And the four corners were supports for basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected upwards one cubit. Its opening was round, as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings, and its panels were car- square, not round. The four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were on one piece with the stands, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports and the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. On the top of the stand there was a round band, half a cubit high. On the top of the stand, its stay and its panel were of one piece with it. On the surface of its stays and its panels he carved cherubim, lions and palm trees according to the space of each with wreaths all around. After this manner he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and same form. And he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held forty baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the ten stands. He set the stands, five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon, the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls, the capitals, that were on top of the pillars. And the two latticeworks to cover the two bowls, the capitals, that were on top of the pillars. The 400 pomegranates for the two latticeworks, two rows of pomegranates for each latticework, to cover the two bowls, the capitals, that were on the pillars. The ten stands, the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea, and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plan of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay around between Succoth and Zarathon. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them 
the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs, the gold, cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasures of the house of the Lord. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at the, that passage, 1 Kings 5 to 7. But before we do, there's a couple of things to mention. Straight after this morning's service, or sermon rather, there's going to be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. So I do want you to know that's coming so you can be thinking about what questions you might like to ask. And of course, it can be anything related to the things that we've been thinking about or the passage that we've been looking at. There's also a sermon outline in your handout that you can use if it's helpful and ignore if it's not. But finally, and most importantly, let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can read of this temple that Solomon built. And as we reflect on these things, can we see, pray, Lord, that you'll help us see how this fits in with your perfect plan. We pray, Lord, that we would, as we reflect on these things, we'll see that this is not just an obscure passage of the Bible, but this has great significance for us. Amen. The problem is that whenever a contemporary reader arrives at Genesis 1, 2, 3, they're so busy thinking about dinosaurs, the Big Bang, and evolution, that they never listen to anything that the text actually says. And yet the reality is Genesis 1, 2, 3 are quite possibly the most important texts in the Bible. Now, even if you did go to the trouble of making a case that there was another passage that was more important than Genesis 1 to 3, you still have the problem that what, whatever passage you have chosen has to be understood in the context of what's already been established in Genesis 1 to 3. Nothing that comes after makes any sense without Genesis 1 to 3. So, let's have a quick think. Genesis 1. God creates the world and puts his image bearers, man and woman, in the world. Genesis 2, things get a little bit more intimate. Everything becomes focused on a garden that God plants for his image bearers. It's not a back garden. That's a modern innovation. This is more like a stately garden. It has three rivers that run down into the garden and provide the water for the garden. And it's a garden that's full of orchards. There are many trees that produce fruit that God's people are free to eat from. At the beginning of Genesis 2, we read how God is at rest with his creation. Now, when we hear rest, we tend to think of relaxing after a hard week's work. 
But this sort of rest is more to do with being at peace with his creation. See, at the end of Genesis, uh, the start of Genesis 2, there's no hostility within God's creation and between him and his image bearers. They're at rest or at peace. There's a point in Genesis 3 where God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now we know by this point everything's gone wrong. But we do have this brief imagery of God dwelling with his people in the garden. Though as I say, it's short-lived. And so God's image bearers, man and woman, were to live in the garden... And they're told back in Genesis 1 verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So here we have this plan presented to God's people. They are to have little image bearers who in turn will have their little image bearers. And as they do, their numbers will increase And as their numbers increase, the boundaries of the garden will need to expand. And the boundaries of the garden will continue to expand until eventually the garden reaches the ends of the earth. It all begins at a single point. The garden. From there, it goes outwards until the whole earth is filled. But of course, it wasn't to be. We're not in Genesis 1 to 3. We're in Kings, 1 Kings 5 to 7. Which is why you're probably thinking this is a very odd introduction to Solomon's building of the temple. But do not worry, all will become clear. 1 Kings 5-7 really is not the preacher's choice. That is to say, if you were invited to preach at a church, just as a one-off, I don't think you're going to think, I know, let's pick that passage all about building the temple. The preacher is much more likely to choose the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, or maybe a favourite tidbit from Romans. Our passage really doesn't appear to be the most exciting with its carved pomegranates and recessed frames. It's a little bizarre, it's a little dull. But then maybe these details are actually quite important. For example, have a quick look at 6 verse 18. 6 verse 18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds or vegetables and open flowers. All was cedar No stone was seen. So we have this picture of this temple that's covered in wood completely. And the wood has carved into it vegetables and flowers. Or we can look at 6 verse 29. Round all the walls of the house, the carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. So here we find ourselves in the inner sanctuary. Once again, it's covered in wood, and here there are palm trees and flowers 
carved into the wood. Then in 7 verse 15 and onwards, we read of these two pillars. And they're described as being decorated with pomegranates and lilies. What we begin to see is the temple is decorated to look like a garden. Let's then add to this a few more details. The first is found in 6 verse 13. It says this, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Solomon's building a house for the Lord, which signifies that the God of all creation will dwell with the Israelites. And God explains that if Solomon walks in the statutes that God has commanded, and we can actually assume that he leads his people to follow those same statutes as he rules over them, then God will dwell, will live with his people. Let's add another detail. Five, three to four. You know that, my David, my, uh, that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Solomon is speaking to Hiram, the king of Tyre, who is friends with David, Solomon's father. And Solomon explains that he wishes to build a temple, the one which David had hoped to build. However, David couldn't because his reign was a, a reign of warfare. And so God stopped him from building the temple. However, Solomon's reign is one of rest. Now this is intriguing because we would have expected Solomon to say that his kingdom is now in a time of peace. But he doesn't. He says it's a time of rest. Which takes us back to what we said at the start. We tend to think rest means relaxing but it doesn't. It means a time when there's no hostility. And Solomon is now able to build the temple of the Lord because his kingdom is at rest. So at this point in our thought process, what we have is this. The temple resembles a garden. God has promised to dwell with his people. And God's kingdom is at rest and then God's king, Solomon, will rule over God's people under God's rule. We can go further on and add further details to this. We can also see the respect that King of Tyre has for Solomon. So verse 7 from chapter 5. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon... He rejoiced greatly and said, 
Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. Are we maybe beginning to see the nations looking into God's kingdom and being impressed by the Lord's king so much so that they acknowledge the greatness of God and his king? We could also add to this what we considered last week. Solomon differs from Adam in that he seeks to know good and evil from God instead of establishing it himself. And yet Solomon is also like Adam because he names and identifies and understands the creation as Adam had done before him. So we begin to see that the purpose of the temple takes its instruction and guidance in what was outlined at creation in the garden. The temple is not inward-looking, but outward. It is God who dwells with his people in the garden temple. And God is at rest with his people as they live according to his statutes. And as the nations look in, they will see the glory of the people and be impressed by the glory of the Lord. And the boundaries of Israel have the potential to reach the ends of the earth under the influence of such a great king and a wise king who sits under the creator. When we come to the New Testament, it begins with the birth of a child. The name that he is given is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God lives with his people as he walks along with them in the cool of the day. And when Jesus visits the temple, the house that had been built for his father, to dwell with his people, he found the area that was available for the nations was being taken up with the selling of animals for sacrifices. And so he turns the tables and sends the animals out. When questioned as to why he thinks he has the authority to criticize the temple and how he will prove it, he responds with this. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. To which John, as the narrator, adds his own comment and says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And of course, we know how this plays out. Jesus is arrested, and he's crucified. On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. At which point, he gathers his disciples to him. Now, at this point, there's an awful lot taking place. What we have here is a a representative of humanity that, unlike Adam, 
obeyed God. He, like Solomon, sought wisdom from God. He didn't seek to do things his own way. Having been raised from the dead, his kingdom is established, just as Solomon's kingdom was established back in 1 Kings 2. We also have God dwelling with his people. Furthermore, because of his once-for-all sacrifice, the people are at rest with their God. And it's in this context that Jesus meets them at one point. One point in Jerusalem. Because it's in Jerusalem where it will all begin. He gathers his disciples to him and then he sends them out. Bursting the boundaries of Jerusalem, they go into Judea. Not content to remain there, they will go out and speak of Jesus in Samaria. And in doing so, they will gather up both the southern and northern kingdom as one, under one king. And this testimony about Jesus will continue until the whole earth is filled. By Acts 28, the known ends of the earth has been reached. And all nations, or at least peoples from all nations, are included in the people of God. See, in Genesis, creation sets up a pattern. It's this same pattern that's picked up by Solomon and his building of the temple. But it's a pattern that's only ever completely experienced when we get to Jesus. And it's this pattern that we both experience now but also look forward to as we anticipate experiencing it in all its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you sent your son Jesus to fulfill those creation ordinances that you had put in place so many moons ago. We thank you that your plan has never deviated but has remained uh, constant with your immutable plan. That you would put your king and establish his kingdom over all the earth. And the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Okay, I mentioned at the start, before we began the sermon, that there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make any comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about this morning. That moment has arrived. So any questions, comments, or thoughts? Queries about further implications? Questions of clarification? Don't ask me about the recess windows. Caroline.
Okay, so to repeat the question for the sake of the recording, if Solomon re was really wise, why did he marry Pharaoh's daughter? <laughs> um, well, women are the downfall of us all. Um, well, I, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? So I guess your problem is we kind of, we're expecting Solomon to fail. You know, it, it kind of doesn't really work if Solomon doesn't fail. You know, that's one side of the coin. He isn't going to be the solution. And of course, we know that in, in spades because we know who the solution is. So there is this anticipation he's going to fall at some point. Um, and I guess there's a similar sense in... in David was, um, you know, however you look at the phrase, he was a man after uh, God's own heart, both imply that he's God's chosen king or he had a, you know, his view was the same as God's view and yet he failed, he sinned. So at some point he's going to fall. How does Solomon fall and fail and what the shortcomings of him? Well, it's his love of the ladies that breaks him. And, of course, that's the thing. That's the problem. We, well, we haven't got to it yet, so I can't tell you what happens. But you already know what happens in the sense that it's his wives that are his downfall. Um, yeah, so he was obedient as far as he was obedient, and he failed as far as he failed. Uh, Nathan. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it's interesting because a lot of people make a lot of the fact that he first builds God's house and then he builds um, his own house. Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't pick anything up of the commentary, but to be honest, I didn't read the commentary particularly. I relied on something else this week. Um, I could have a look, but... Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't got anything helpful to say, I don't think. Uh, Adrian? 3-2. Three, two. Well, and this is it, yeah. I mean, I get, and I think with all these things, you've got to kind of like, um, you're kind of building a picture, aren't you? And you kind of, I don't think you could say, oh, the temple took seven years and therefore that's that and therefore it took 30 years and so therefore we can draw this conclusion. But rather it kind of gets you thinking and think, hmm, it's not all as it seems. Maybe we can put, add some more to this 
And as we add more to this, it will all be revealed. Time for one more. Last chance. Ah, Susie. Yeah, it could be. So the question is, everything's very precise. Did God tell them exactly how to build it? Or is it just based on contemporary worship? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of, bit of both going on there. I mean, obviously, we go to Noah's Ark, and that is all prescribed. I think the tabernacle is all prescribed. So we're probably assuming this is all prescribed as well. Um, and then, I mean, it gets quite interesting when you get to Ezekiel, the later chapters of Ezekiel where you've got similar sort of stuff, but details are left out, so you couldn't... There really wouldn't be enough details to do it. Not that there's enough details here, necessarily. Um, but, yeah, I think... I mean, there's, there's details like, for example, the stones are to be made... Uh, sort of shaped outside of the temple at the quarry, not to be brought in, so there'd be no sound or striking of, of stone in the house. There's the details about the, um, the pillars are not to be part of the walls. There's, um, in, they're to be set in, aren't they? So there's, there's sort of holes made for the pillars to stand. So I think they're quite peculiar details that sort of make stand it out as this is a peculiar house to the Lord but I mean I put my I, I focused in on the garden like stuff you can also add the cherubim as well there's a sense in that the cherubim provide it with both the sense that the cherubim guard the um, garden and also the sense that there's a heavenly like sense this is both garden like and heavenly like so it's, it is very intended to be a peculiar place for the Lord. One of the things that's worth saying is, obviously this, if, if what we've said this morning is right, then that blows out any misunderstanding about the church buildings. And that's the nice thing about me to the Midland Hotel. You cannot mistake this for a church building because all the weird and wonderful things that people get up to in this hotel means it wouldn't be, oh, it's not a holy place to be in. Um, so it reminds us that, and, and it's important that because the church is not fulfilling the role of the temple because Jesus has fulfilled that role, the ends of the earth have already been reached. We are just continuing that as we anticipate and look forward to um, the complete consummation of that. That's just a bonus to avoid Susie's question really. Okay, should we stop there? And we're going to spend a bit of time in a moment reflecting 
a little bit further on what we've been thinking about today. But before we do, we're going to stand to sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs> 